we're kicking off a new series, calling this one Dwell. And I'm going to talk about what that means here in a second. Last week, we wrapped up our 2017 kickoff series. We called that one The Word. And as a church, we decided to use the beginning of this year to uh, rally around a concise vision. Each week, we chose one word that we believe is important to God, and we made it our banner. Words like persistence and obedience and grace. And last week, one of our elders, Larry, beautifully uh, wrapped up our series with a Valentine's Week-inspired word. Love. The greatest of these is love. And speaking of love, here at Echo, we are celebrating the engagement of two of our special friends, Johannes and Brooklyn. And I know he's in the, I know he's in the homeland right now, but we're, everybody, we're so excited for, uh, for y'all's future and for everything down the road for you. If you were here last week, we each chose a word individually to focus on throughout the year. The word that I chose is bold. And I didn't want to waste any time going after my word bold. So last weekend for two days in a row, I boldly went where I'm not sure any man or woman has actually gone before. All right. Last Saturday and Sunday, two days in a row, I conquered the breakfast buffet at Parkside Cafe down the street. Saturday and Sunday, unlimited helpings, bacon and getta and sausage and biscuits and gravy. That's a bold move. And now I am bolder and I'm heavier for it. And I need prayer. All right, can we pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you for Echo Church. We thank you for the ability to come together and to worship. Lord, what we're asking for today is your presence here, for it to be undeniable, for us to see you in a whole new way. Engage us with this series. Help us to do your will. Help us to see you in everything. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, during the week, I think a lot of y'all know this. I have another job. And on my other job, we just hired an intern. And the intern's name is Brianna. We call her Bree. Bree is about 20 years old. She's an intern working, then also going to school part-time. So she's had uh, jobs before. But this is, her, this is her first real corporate experience. This is her first office experience. And I remember working as an intern and then also going to school. And I remember at that time thinking, wow, this is a whole lot to juggle, which is just really funny right now at this time in my life. But I I befriended Bree and I asked her, so Bree, what's the hardest part about your new corporate life? I was expecting her to say something like, I don't like waking up early. It's tough to learn the technical language. I'm trying to figure out the systems. I thought she would say something like that. She didn't say any of that. Bree's response to what's the hardest thing was small talk, small talk. I said, wait, what? She said, no, the small talk. I can't do it. I hate it. It kills me. All these, all these people do is talk about the traffic and the weather and, oh, are you working hard or hardly working? And if I hear one more person ask me or tell me that they're busy, I'm going to smash my head in the copier. And I'm like, Bree, welcome. We hope you love it here. We hope you love the company. No, but I actually totally get it. I told Bree this. I've lived in Cincinnati for a little over five years. I know, everyone knows that the weather changes a lot. Can we get over that right now? Let's put that out there. And yes, 71 north toward Mason, it's, yeah, in the morning, it's a little congested. If you're going south on Friday, Friday afternoon, sorry, that's your fault. You should know better. Uh, These are things that we know. So yeah, I get it. 
I'm an extrovert and I don't even like small talk that much. My best friend at work's name is Eric. Eric's going to be preaching here next weekend. Y'all are going to love him. Um, we spend a lot of time at work talking about the deep stuff. We talk about theology and philosophy. We talk about all the different aspects of human behavior and deep questions in life. Like, are eyebrows considered facial hair? And at the movies, which armrest is yours? The deepest things in human experience. But you can't always do that. You can't always do that, especially not at work. You're not supposed to. So why do we small talk? Why do we small talk? Why engage in this torturous behavior? I'm speaking to a lot of extroverts here, so I know I'm on the verge of an amen. Well, part of this, part of this is just social norms. Okay, it's an American cultural value for us to kind of stay surface level and, and talk like that. Um, but it's also just easier to stay about here. It's easier to say things like, hey, how are you? How's the wife? That's easy. What's a little more difficult is to ask questions like, hey, tell me about your marriage. What's God been doing in your life recently? Those kinds of questions. These questions take focus and active listening and authenticity and compassion. And you can't ever ask the server at Parkside Cafe, tell me about your marriage. That's weird. So I believe when we, when we take a closer look, there's another reason that we small talk. I think there's another reason. I believe it's because we've become numb. I believe we small talk because we've fallen asleep. See, being stuck on small talk isn't the actual problem. It's an easy scapegoat, but it's really just a symptom. Part of the human experience, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is falling asleep to the world around you. When, when the things at one point in your life used to make you drop your jaw in amazement, they suddenly lose their luster and they don't surprise you anymore. It happens to all of us. See, my daughter uh, is about five months old and she has hundreds of toys already. She hasn't played with any of them yet. Um, bright colors, uh, different shapes and unique textures, things to grab and pull and, and to push and things to chew or slobber on. All, she has all these things. And you know what attracts her attention more than anything else that we have in our house? It's not the toys. It's, it's actually light, light. She stares at light which I don't think is really good for your eyes, but her parents aren't that smart. Um, she doesn't care though. She doesn't care. Sasquatch could walk through our living room and she would stare at the ceiling light and it just wouldn't bother her at all. But pretty soon, she's not going to fixate on lights anymore. It'll probably be next week. The wonder of them will fade, even though light is objectively a pretty fascinating concept. Adults are much better at this or much worse at this, depending on how you look at it. There's a uh, Louis C.K. skit Yes, I'm talking about him in church, where he talks about the absurdity of adults and how quickly we become spoiled and displeased and unimpressed. And C.K. recalls an experience he had on an airplane. Y'all seen this one? And he talks about the very first time he was on a plane and there was Wi-Fi. And the pilot comes on and he's proudly announcing, ladies and gentlemen, we have a wireless internet on this flight, one of the first to have it. So enjoy, surf the internet while we're flying through the sky. And then CK says it was awesome. He was surfing the internet, watching videos on YouTube, checking Facebook. All of a sudden, cut. It's done. Internet's gone. And he looks at the guy next to him. And the guy next to him is like, what is this? This garbage. This, somebody needs to fix this. This is ridiculous. What's, you know, this is so stupid. And CK says, dude, five minutes ago, you didn't know this existed. It's bananas. All right. Uh, another thing. <laughs> about CK is he talks a little bit more about, about flight and uh, how we as adults have become so unimpressed with it. So I want to show you this quick clip. 
because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the 40s in Germany. That's yeah. how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? You not contributing zero? That you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing. Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh my god! Wow! Yes! You're flying. You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sitting in a chair in the sky. Did you hear? He even called it the miracle of flight. Flight is amazing when you think about it. But so is walking. And so is breathing. And so is the fact that my heart is hopefully incessantly beating right now. Without me even thinking about it. And so was my eyes being able to process your beautiful faces in front of me. And make sense of the world around me. Life in general is a miracle. And we only get one side, one life on this side of heaven. So Jesus has some really strong words on this exact topic. That's where we're going with this. Particularly in the 21st chapter of Luke. This will be our text today. What happens in chapter 21 before we get to our key verses here? Let's give us some context. First is the story of the widow who gives the two copper coins, right? The the wealthy folks come by and Jesus is with the disciples and he looks to them and says, now you see these wealthy people and they give out of their wealth. You see this woman giving her two coins. Well, she gives all that she has. She gives more than anyone else. Then we see the disciples talking about the beauty of the temple, how these ornate stones are here and all these, all these lavish gifts that people have dedicated to God. And then Jesus again looks to his friends and says, hey, a time will come when not one of these stones will be on top of another. The city of Jerusalem is going to be wiped out. Everyone's going to hate you. People are going to betray you. A lot of you are going to go to prison. Many of you will be murdered. But stand firm. Stand firm because you will gain life. And what happened? We know from history that this exact prophecy took place some 37 years later. Just as Jesus prophesied, the Roman army came in under Titus. And they destroyed the temple. The Romans saw that the temple stones were inlaid with gold. So they actually did remove every stone from the one that it was over. Just as Jesus said. And just after this prophecy in chapter 21, we see Jesus do what he often does. He flips the script. He transitions between immediate prophecy and the greater picture. The foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem suddenly became a, pro- uh, a prophecy about the destruction of That would ensue when Jesus returned. Okay? The consummate ending of all history. That's where Jesus goes. So we're going to have Alicia read for us this morning. And we're going to start with verses 25 through 28 in Luke 21. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things began to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Yes, perfect. 
Um, and Alicia, hold tight because we're going to jump right back into this next part. But look at these four verses. What do we see? This sounds terrifying. Anguish, fainting from terror, apprehension. This is Jesus returning in judgment. But this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story for us. Not for you who believe in Jesus. It says, you in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus says, lift your heads up. Because for you, redemption is drawing near. And here's where the disciples were probably a little confused. With all this wild prophecy from their teacher, they're probably like, when's this actually going down? When's this going to happen? So like Jesus often does, he follows up this prophecy with a parable to try to add some clarity to this. And this is where we'll continue here on our way to the focal passage of the morning. So can you continue reading actually 29 to 33? He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Yes, so what's Jesus saying here in this parable? Well, he is saying that the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple here, is imminent. It's happening during this current generation. The disciples have this wild imagery in their minds about what it'll look like. And they've got to be thinking, how are we going to know? How are we going to know? And how will the people on earth know when the greater judgment comes, when Jesus returns? How are we going to know that happens? And basically, Jesus is saying right here, oh, you'll know. You will know. When the fig tree uh, leaves appear, you know it's summer. It's unmistakable. My return will be the same way, says Jesus. When you see these things, the kingdom of God is near. So if we're getting tempted to get lost in all the esoteric kind of hidden meanings that come with eschatology and the end times, the way I see this is Jesus basically saying, not necessary, not necessary. This is not meant to be read like some kind of cryptogram. We're not looking at horoscopes. On the topic of Jesus' return, he says, hey, when you see these things happening around you, you'll know it's time and you won't be able to mistake it for, for anything else. So we've heard Jesus' message about all this. Now, what are we supposed to do? This is where we're going to really dig in this morning. It's verses 34 through 36. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This, this is our prayer. For Echo Church. This is our aim for the series that you and me would live today in light of what we know comes tomorrow. That we would live today in light of what's coming tomorrow. That we could be a group of people who don't, we don't pull our hair out over the things that aren't going to matter in a hundred years. That we don't get lost in the trials of our own day. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's totally possible that you and me, we give our lives to Christ, we profess Jesus as Savior with our mouths. You know, we come to church to hear the word and we even read our daily devotional. But then we go about the rest of our life as sort of as functional atheists. We can't really tell a difference. We don't look at the world any differently. The message of this morning, the message of this passage that we just read, is that Jesus calls us to live this day in light of the day that will come when we see Jesus face to face. 
Jesus warns us, be careful or your heart will become weighed down. Your heart will get sleepy. And here Jesus gives us three ways our hearts become sleepy. You see him right there in verse 34 that, that we just read. Number one, carousing, drunkenness, anxieties of life. Well, let's, let's look at those a little bit. Carousing just means wild living. It means squandering your resources. Okay, we all, we all know what this looks like. It's basically you live today as if there's no tomorrow. Not in the biblical sense, but the, just that tomorrow is your end. As if tomorrow's your true end. And that's carousing. Think prodigal son type of thing. It could be an obsession with the next thing. Like a materialistic mindset. Where life is all about the next phone or the next car or the next house, the next vacation. Keeping up with the Joneses type of thing. Obsessing over the climb of the social ladder. Carousing can weigh us down. We've all seen this. And it wouldn't be a, a David Wheatley sermon if there wasn't a C.S. Lewis quote to chew on. So I want to show this. Screwtape Letters is actually my least favorite C.S. Lewis book. It, it's just, it's, it feels strange reading it. And uh, this is the imagined dialogue between Screwtape, who's the senior demon, and then his nephew demon, Wormwood, as Screwtape instructs Wormwood on how to, how to take his human off course and to basically bring him to hell. And uh, Wormwood actually refers in Screwtape to this person as the patient. I know, it's really... It's really messed up. C.S. Lewis says that it was, a, it was a horrible book to write, too, that he was glad when he was done with it. But here's the quote. Screwtape mentions, uh, says this to Wormwood. Get the people to enjoy the simple pleasures that God gives them, but at the wrong quantity and at the wrong time. See, carousing or while living doesn't mean committing crazy crimes or engaging in inherently evil behavior. That's not what it is. It simply means going too far. It means going out of bounds with the stuff that isn't inherently bad. On this exact same note, the second thing Jesus says, warns us of, is that we will, be, we will develop a sleepy heart, we will fall asleep with drunkenness. Yes, getting drunk will do that. If we drink to the point that we, that we lose control of ourselves, we'll not just physically fall asleep, but we're going to fall asleep spiritually as well. We'll fall asleep to all the kingdom stuff around us. Drunkenness can, over time, take us far off track for living as a redeemed people. And as a church, you're not going to click on Echo's website in the about page and see that we're teetotalers or anything. I know that together, many of us have, have shared some beverages. But there are people here who never, never consume alcohol too. And I believe based on what we see in the Bible and what we don't see, that's all totally fine. What I think here is clear though from scripture is that drunkenness, Consumption to the point of marketed intoxication, yeah, that's, that's never a choice that honors God, ever, ever. And Jesus says it'll weigh us down. He says it'll take us out of the kingdom mindset. And what's the final thing that Jesus talks about? And maybe for a lot of us, I know for me, this is the biggest, the biggest struggle. It's being weighed down by the anxieties of life. It's really easy to point out the wild one or the drunk. It's easy to do that. But how often do we convict the worry wart? How often do we do that? This year I started watching what was my favorite show on Netflix. And guys in the, in the men's group, you might have heard me talk about this, my affinity for this show. But it's called Longmire. <laughs> and it's, it's five seasons long. They're working on the sixth uh, one. It'll be out this year. And that's the final one. So in Netflix math, this took me about a week and a half, two weeks to finish. See, Longmire is basically this murder mystery based off of a novel series. It's based on a novel, so this is good, right? It was turned into a TV show. It takes place in present-day Wyoming. 
And the main protagonist in the series, of course, is Sheriff Walt Longmire, for which the show was named. He's this middle-aged, wise guy who his wife was murdered. And so he spends all the rest of his life going to these impossible lengths to find the criminals in his county and bring them to justice. That's all he does. And I'm not going to spoil anything about Longmire because I'm still working through how we can have a mandatory church ministry. I haven't worked out the details yet around this, but just stay tuned. There came a time, there came a time in, in... season four, early on in season four, where stuff just started getting crazy. It was, it felt like the finale. And Longmire actually found out who the person was that was responsible for the death of his wife. And it, it went down in his house. There, there was, it was a crazy epic brawl. They were rolling around. They were knocking over everything. Weapons were drawn. There was blood everywhere. I'm freaking out. This battle scene it's driving me crazy. I'm sitting on my couch sweating and biting my nails and lifting them up out of my seat. And then all of a sudden, this thought dawns on me. You dummy, this is season four. <laughs> You've seen the trailer for season six. He's in it. <laughs> he is not going to die here. And he didn't. He didn't. Friends, we know how this ends. We know Jesus tells us. You just read it. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. The show is called Jesus Redeems. We don't know what season we're in. We don't know how many more are left, but we do know the ending. We're certain of that. And it's a good one for those who believe, for those of us who place our faith in the Lord. So there's, there's no reason for us to sweat the small stuff and to bite our nails. The anxieties of life are actually just there to distract us. That's what, they are. That's what they're there for. Jesus says if we succumb to this kind of mindset, the end will come upon us like a trap. I don't want that. The end when Jesus returns, but also the end of our lives. You know, you recall Jesus saying this. How many years can worrying add to your life? None, none. And in fact, worrying strips away our time. Time when we could be awake to the beauty around us. Time when we could be observing the miracle of flight or seeing the innocence in our children or going deeper than small talk in conversations. This is all things that we can use our time for. And that is how Jesus calls us to live, awake, to know that he dwells everywhere, all the time. And some skeptics say, and some skeptics say that if Jesus could just appear to me, if he could just make some awesome miracle right in front of me, I just want to see proof if he would do that I would never live wildly. I would never get drunk. I would never be consumed with worry ever again. If only I could see proof. No, that's probably not actually true. See, some people are so set in their ways and their beliefs that even when something dramatic happens, they won't budge. In psychology, we call this cognitive dissonance. When you're moving along in life and you've got your beliefs and your worldview, and then all of a sudden you encounter something that just... It rocks it, it shakes it, it goes up against what you've, what you've believed for so long. It makes you feel uncomfortable. That right there is called cognitive dissonance. And when some people feel cognitive dissonance, they adapt, they adapt, adjust, they change the way they think. And other people don't. I've always myself disliked baseball, okay? Always. It's boring to me. It's a slow game. If you can eat while you're playing a sport, I, n- never mind. This is, I can't get on this. This is not the time of place, but I've been an outspoken opponent of baseball around my friends for a long time. And one of them challenged me this year. He said, you got to watch it. 
World Series, you know, all these backstories. Game seven, just watch it. I promise you will like it. So I watched. I watched the World Series last year. And as I sat there kind of judging and condemning this game, very Christian things to do. I don't care who wins. This is baseball. But then a batter struck out and I sort of like hit my knee. (laughs) And then another guy hit a base hit and I sort of lifted up out of the couch. And then when it looked like it was kind of over, bottom of the eighth inning, Rajay Davis steps up and smacks one deep left, two-run home run. Indians send it to extra innings, and I'm running around the room. (laughs) I'm yelling. I'm trying not to wake Amanda up. And then that moment struck me as I settled back down on my couch about 11 o'clock at night. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Do I like baseball? Oh, no. Do I like baseball? No, this can't be happening. Maybe my friends were right. Maybe the sport isn't of the devil. That was game seven of the World Series. I'm sure it's terrible the rest of the year. See, this is some serious cognitive dissonance that I've got to deal with. And I worry that after bringing this up in front of all of you that I can't live in denial anymore. (laughs) Remember the beginning of Passion Week, nearing the end of Jesus' life. His friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus makes this trip to Bethany. Lazarus has been dead for three days. And Jesus does this spectacular miracle. He walks up and he says, peel away the stone. And Lazarus' sister is there and she's like, no, don't do that. He's been dead for three days. This is going to smell something fierce. And what's Jesus do? He says, when you believe, you will see the glory of God. And he raises Lazarus. He calls Lazarus forth from the grave. And what's the response of the Jewish leadership, of the non-believing Jewish leadership, when they witness this amazing miracle, what, how do they respond? Well, when, when the earthquake upon their worldview occurs, when they see Jesus is who he's been saying he is, and they've been denying it, what happens? Many of them actually believed. We see that in the, in, in the Bible. It says that. But when it came to non-believing Jewish leadership, they said, we've got to do something about this. We can't have this. If he keeps doing all these miracles like the one we just witnessed, people will believe in him. The Romans will come in and wipe us out. They'll wipe out our temple. They'll take away our power. We cannot have that. So Jesus' opponents said, if he keeps doing all these miracles, and right there, when they say that, they've acknowledged that Jesus is completely capable of doing it, and they just witnessed it. They've acknowledged that. But instead of dropping to their knees... And following the appropriate response after you see something like that, what do they do? They dig in further. They talk about their plot to kill Jesus. But it wasn't just Jesus. Lazarus. Lazarus was now a walking piece of evidence. A walking, breathing evidence of Jesus' messianic power. He was a problem. This guy was dead for three days. Everybody knew it. And now he's walking around. They got to do something about that. And... I want to look at John chapter 12, 9 to 11. This is where we come in in the story. It says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. They had to get rid of Lazarus too. And there in the next chapter after the resurrection, what we just read, you see them plotting to kill Lazarus. But the person who says, I just need to see God. All I need is some proof. And I will, I will live my life accordingly. No, the Bible says no. Psychology says no. You won't. Don't count on it. 
The sun softens butter, but it hardens clay. God is calling us right now at Echo, wherever we are, to come follow him. And following God here and now requires us to be awake to his presence. He's telling us, let go of all this stuff that weighs you down. Take heart. I dwell with you here now. And I'm going to return. And I've told you how this ends. So lift up your head because redemption draws near. I don't, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know. No one does. It's probably not going to be today. I doubt it's tomorrow. It might not happen during my lifetime at all. But I would resolve to say that it doesn't matter when. What really matters is how we're living life right now. What we're doing with the days we have left. We don't know how many we have. That's why I'm so excited for this series, for Dwell to kick this off today. This series is our wake-up call. The best way to stay awake to God is to talk to Him. Seek Him in everything that we see. Eliminate those secular moments. I want Echo, I want this church to be kingdom-minded, awake to all the beauty that's around us, living not for the present struggles and not even for the fading joys, but the joy and awareness that he has redeemed us and he will return. How's that sound? Let's ask for some help with that. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time where we could focus on your presence because you dwell with us everywhere. We ask that we can see you not just on Sundays, Lord, not just when we're studying the word, but in everything because you are there. Seek and we will find you. So for these next few weeks, Lord, develop in us a spiritual discipline that can outlast all the things around us trying to call us to sleep. We're asking you, to wake us up, wake us up and help us partake in this miracle that we have every single day, every day, because it'll, in the end, it'll bring us closer to you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.